Book 1, Part 7 of Herodotus Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eric Franklin. Histories, Volume 1, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus. Translated by A. D. Godley. Book 1, Part 7. Now, when the boy was ten years old, the truth about him was revealed in some such way as this. He was playing in the village where these herdsmen's quarters were, playing in the road with others of his age. The boys, while playing, chose to be their king, this one who was supposed to be the son of the cowherd. Then he assigned some of them to the building of houses, some to be his bodyguard, one doubtless to be the king's eye, to another he gave the right of bringing him messages, to each he gave his proper work. Now one of these boys playing with him was the son of Artimbaris, a notable Mede. When he did not perform his assignment from Cyrus, Cyrus told the other boys to seize him, and when they did so, he handled the boy very roughly and whipped him. As soon as he was let go, very upset about the indignity he had suffered, he went down to his father in the city and complained of what he had received at the hands of the son of Astyages Cowherd, not calling him Cyrus, for that name had not yet been given. Artimbaris, going just as angry as he was to Astyages and bringing his son along, announced that an impropriety had been committed, saying, O king, by your slave, the son of a cowherd, we have been outraged thus. And with that he bared his son's shoulders. When Astyages heard and saw, he was ready to avenge the boy in view of Artimbari's rank, so he sent for the cowherd and his son. When they were both present, Astyages said, fixing his eyes on Cyrus, Is it you, then, the child of one such as this, who have dared to lay hands on the son of the greatest of my courtiers? Cyrus answered, Master, what I did to him I did with justice. The boys of the village, of whom he was one, chose me while playing to be their king, for they thought me the most fit for this. The other boys then did as assigned, but this one was disobedient and cared nothing for me, for which he got what he deserved. Now if I deserve punishment for this, here I am to take it. While the boy spoke, it seemed to Astyages that he recognized him. The character of his face was like his own, he thought, and his manner of answering was freer than customary, and the date of the exposure seemed to agree with the boy's age. Astonished at this, he sat a while silent, but when at last with difficulty he could collect his wits, he said, for he wanted to be rid of Artimbaris and question the cowherd with no one present, I shall act in such a way, Artimbaris, that you and your son shall have no cause of complaint. So he sent Artimbaris away, and the attendants led Cyrus inside at Astyages' bidding. When the cowherd was left quite alone, Astyages asked him where he had got the boy and who had been the giver. The cowherd answered that Cyrus was his own son and that the mother was still with him. Astyages said that he was not well advised if he wished to find himself in a desperate situation, and as he said this made a sign to the spear-bearers to seize him. Then, under stress of necessity, the cowherd disclosed to him the whole story, telling everything exactly as it had happened from the beginning, 
and at the end fell to entreaty and urged the king to pardon him. When the cowherd had discovered the true story, Astyages took less interest in him, but he was very angry with Harpagus and asked the guards to summon him. Harpagus came, and Astyages asked him, Harpagus, how did you kill the boy, my daughter's son, whom I gave you? Harpagus, when he saw the cowherd was there, did not take the way of falsehood, lest he be caught and confuted. O king, he said, when I took the boy, I thought and considered how to do what you wanted, and not be held a murderer by your daughter or by you, even though I was blameless toward you. So I did this. I summoned this cowherd here, and gave the child to him, telling him that it was you who gave the command to kill it. And that was the truth, for such was your command. But I gave the child with the instructions that the cowherd was to lay it on a desolate mountainside and wait there and watch until it was dead, and I threatened all sorts of things if he did not accomplish this. Then, when he had done what he was told, and the child was dead, I sent the most trusted of my eunuchs and had the body viewed and buried. This, O king, is the story, and such was the end of the boy. Harpagus told the story straight, while Astyages, hiding the anger that he felt against him for what had been done, first repeated the story again to Harpagus exactly as he had heard it from the cowherd. Then, after repeating it, ended by saying that the boy was alive and that the matter had turned out well. For, he said, I was greatly afflicted by what had been done to this boy, and it weighed heavily on me that I was estranged from my daughter. Now then, in this good turn of fortune, send your own son to this boy newly come, and since I am about to sacrifice for the boy's safety to the gods, to whom this honor is due, come here to dine with me. When Harpagus heard this, he bowed and went to his home, very pleased to find that his offense had turned out for the best, and that he was invited to dinner in honor of this fortunate day. Coming in, he told his only son, a boy of about thirteen years of age, to go to Astyages' palace and do whatever the king commanded, and in his great joy he told his wife everything that had happened. But when Harpagus' son came, Astyages cut his throat and tore him limb from limb, roasted some of the flesh and boiled some, and kept it ready after he had prepared it. So when the hour for dinner came and the rest of the guests and Harpagus were present, Astyages and the others were served dishes of lamb's meat, but Harpagus that of his own son, all but the head and hands and feet which lay apart covered up in a wicker basket. And when Harpagus seemed to have eaten his fill, Astyages asked him, Did you like your meal, Harpagus? Exceedingly, Harpagus answered. Then those whose job it was brought him the head of his son, and hands and feet concealed in the basket, and they stood before Harpagus, and told him to open and take what he liked. Harpagus did. He opened and saw what was left of his son. He saw this, but mastered himself, and did not lose his composure. Astyages asked him, Do you know what beast's meat you have eaten? I know, he said, and all that the king does is pleasing. With that answer he took the remains of the meat and went home. There he meant, I suppose, after collecting everything, to bury it. Thus Astyages punished Harpagus. But to help him decide about Cyrus, he summoned the same magi who had interpreted his dream as I have said. And when they came, Astyages asked them how they had interpreted his dream. 
They answered as before, and said that the boy must have been made king had he lived and not died first. Then Astyages said, The boy is safe and alive, and when he was living in the country the boys of his village made him king, and he duly did all that is done by true kings, for he assigned to each individually the roles of bodyguards and sentinels and messengers and everything else, and so ruled. And what do you think is the significance of this? If the boy is alive, said the Magi, and has been made king without premeditation, then be confident on this score, and keep an untroubled heart. He will not be made king a second time. Even in our prophecies it is often but a small thing that has been foretold, and the consequences of dreams come to nothing in the end. I too, Magi, said Astyages, am very much of your opinion, that the dream came true when the boy was called king, and that I have no more to fear from him. Nevertheless, consider well and advise me what will be safest both for my house and for you. The Magi said, O king, we too are very anxious that your sovereignty prosper, for otherwise it passes from your nation to this boy who is a Persian, and so we Medes are enslaved and held of no account by the Persians, as we are of another blood. But while you, our countrymen, are established king, we have our share of power, and great honor is shown us by you. Thus, then, we ought by all means to watch out for you and for your sovereignty. And if at the present time we saw any danger, we would declare everything to you. But now the dream has had a trifling conclusion, and we ourselves are confident and advise you to be so also. As for this boy, send him out of your sight to the Persians and to his parents. Hearing this, Astyages was glad, and calling Cyrus, said, My boy, I did you wrong because of a vision I had in a dream that meant nothing, but by your own destiny you still live. Now, therefore, go to the Persians, and good luck go with you. I will send guides with you. When you get there, you will find a father and a mother, unlike the cowherd Mitridates and his wife. After saying this, Astyages sent Cyrus away. When he returned to Cambyses' house, his parents received him there, and learning who he was, they welcomed him enthusiastically, for they had supposed that long ago he had been killed, and they asked him how his life had been saved. Then he told them, and said that until now he had known nothing but been very deceived, but that on the way he had heard the whole story of his misfortune, for he had thought, he said, that Astyages' cowherd was his father, but in his journey from the city his escort had told him the whole story. And he had been raised, he said, by the cowherd's wife, and he was full of her praises, and in his tale he was constantly speaking of Sino. Hearing this name, his parents circulated a story that Cyrus was suckled by a dog when exposed, thinking in this way to make the story of his salvation seem more marvelous to the Persians. This, then, was the beginning of that legend. But as Cyrus grew up to be the manliest and best-loved of his peers, Harpagus courted him and sent him gifts, wishing to be avenged on Astyages, for he saw no hope for a private man like himself of punishing Astyages, but as he saw Cyrus growing up, he tried to make him an ally, for he likened Cyrus's misfortune to his own. Even before this, the following had been done by him. Since Astyages was harsh toward the Medes, 
he associated with each of the chief Medes, and persuaded them to make Cyrus their leader, and depose Astyages. So much being ready and done, Harpagus wanted to reveal his intent to Cyrus, who then lived among the Persians. But the roads were guarded, and he had no plan for sending a message but this. He carefully slit the belly of a hare, and then leaving it as it was without further harm, he put into it a paper on which he wrote what he thought best. Then he sewed up the hare's belly, and sent it to Persia by the most trusted of his servants, giving him nets to carry as if he were a huntsman. The messenger was instructed to give Cyrus the hare, and tell him by word of mouth to cut it open with his own hands, with no one else present. All this was done. Cyrus took the hare, and slid it, and read the paper which was in it. The writing was as follows. Son of Cambyses, since the gods watch over you, otherwise you would not have prospered so, avenge yourself now on Astyages, your murderer, for thanks to his intention you are dead, while thanks to the gods, and me, you live. I expect that long ago you heard the story of what was done concerning you, and how Astyages treated me because I did not kill you, but gave you to the cowherd. If then you will listen to me, you shall rule all the country which is now ruled by Astyages. Persuade the Persians to rebel, and lead their army against the Medes. Then you have your wish, whether I am appointed to command the army against you, or some other notable man among the Medes. For they will of themselves revolt from Astyages, and join you, and try to pull him down. Seeing then that all is ready here, do as I say, and do it quickly. When Cyrus read this, he deliberated as to what was the shrewdest way to persuade the Persians to revolt, and what he thought to be most effective he did. Writing what he liked on a paper, he assembled the Persians, and then unfolded the paper, and declared that in it Astyages appointed him leader of the Persian armies. Now, he said in his speech, I command you, men of Persia, to come, each provided with a sickle. This is what Cyrus said. Now there are many tribes in Persia, those of them that Cyrus assembled and persuaded to revolt from the Medes, were the Pasargadae, the Marafii, and the Maspii. On these all other Persians depended. The chief tribe is that of the Pasargadae. To them belongs the clan of the Achaemenidae, the royal house of Persia. The other Persian tribes are the Panthalei, the Derusiei, and the Germanii, all tillers of the soil, and the Dei, the Mardi, the Dropishi, the Sigartii, all wandering herdsmen. So, when they all came with sickles as ordered, Cyrus commanded them to reclaim in one day a thorny tract of Persia, of two and one quarter or two and one half miles each way in extent. The Persians accomplished the task appointed. Cyrus then commanded them to wash themselves and come the next day, meanwhile collecting his father's goats and sheep and oxen in one place he slaughtered and prepared them as a feast for the Persian host, providing also wine and all the foods that were most suitable. When the Persians came on the next day, he had them sit and feast in a meadow. After dinner, he asked them which they liked more, their task of yesterday or their present pastime. 
They answered that the difference was great. All yesterday they had had nothing but evil, today nothing but good. Then, taking up their word, Cyrus laid bare his whole purpose, and said, This is your situation, men of Persia. Obey me, and you shall have these good things, and ten thousand others besides, with no toil and slavery. But if you will not obey me, you will have labors unnumbered like your toil of yesterday. Now then, do as I tell you, and win your freedom. For I think that I myself was born by a divine chance to undertake this work, and I hold you fully as good men as the Medes in war and in everything else. All this is true. Therefore revolt from Astyages quickly now. The Persians had long been discontent that the Medes ruled them, and now, having got a champion, they were glad to win their freedom. But when Astyages heard that Cyrus was about this business, he sent a messenger to summon him. Cyrus told the messenger to take back word that Astyages would see him sooner than he liked. Hearing this, Astyages armed all his Medes, and was distracted by providence so that he forgot what he had done to Harpagus, and appointed him to command the army. So, when the Medes marched out and engaged with the Persians, those who were not in on the plan fought, while others deserted to the enemy, and most were deliberate cowards and ran. Thus the Median army was shamefully scattered. As soon as Astyages heard, he sent a threatening message to Cyrus. Nevertheless, Cyrus shall not rejoice. And with that he took the Magi who interpreted dreams, who had persuaded him to let Cyrus go free, and impaled them. Then he armed the Medes who were left in the city, the very young and very old men. Leading these out, and engaging the Persians, he was beaten. Astyages himself was taken prisoner, and lost the Median army which he led. When Astyages was a captive, Harpagus came and exulted over him, and taunted him, and besides much other bitter mockery, he recalled his banquet, when Astyages had fed Harpagus his son's flesh, and asked Astyages what it was like to be a slave after having been a king. Fixing his gaze on Harpagus, Astyages asked, Do you imagine that this which Cyrus has done is your work? It was I, said the other, who wrote the letter. The accomplishment of the work is rightly mine. Then, said Astyages, you stand confessed the most foolish and most unjust man on earth, most foolish in giving another the throne which you might have had yourself, if the present business is indeed your doing most unjust in enslaving the Medes because of that banquet, for if in any event another and not you had to possess the royal power, then in justice some Mede should have had it, not a Persian, but now you have made the Medes, who did you no harm, slaves instead of masters, and the Persians, who were the slaves, are now the masters of the Medes. Thus Astyages was deposed from his sovereignty after a reign of thirty-five years and the Medes had to bow down before the Persians because of Astyages' cruelty. They had ruled all Asia beyond the Halys for one hundred and twenty-eight years, from which must be subtracted the time when the Scythians held sway. At a later time they repented of what they now did, and rebelled against Darius, but they were defeated in battle and brought back into subjection. But now, in Astyages' time, 
Cyrus and the Persians rose in revolt against the Medes, and from this time ruled Asia. As for Astyages, Cyrus did him no further harm, and kept him in his own house until Astyages died. This is the story of the birth and upbringing of Cyrus, and of how he became king, and afterwards, as I have already related, he subjugated Croesus in punishment for the unprovoked wrong done him, and after this victory he became sovereign of all Asia. As to the customs of the Persians, I know them to be these. It is not their custom to make and set up statues and temples and altars, but those who do such things they think foolish, because, I suppose, they have never believed the gods to be like men, as the Greeks do. But they call the whole circuit of heaven Zeus, and to him they sacrifice on the highest peaks of the mountains. They sacrifice also to the sun and moon and earth and fire and water and winds. From the beginning, these are the only gods to whom they have ever sacrificed. They learned later to sacrifice to the heavenly Aphrodite from the Assyrians and Arabians. She is called by the Assyrians Mylitta, by the Arabians Alilat, by the Persians Mitra. And this is their method of sacrifice to the aforesaid gods. When about to sacrifice, they do not build altars or kindle fire, employ libations or music or fillets or barley meal. When a man wishes to sacrifice to one of the gods, he leads a beast to an open space and then, wearing a wreath on his tiara, of myrtle usually, calls on the god. To pray for blessings of himself alone is not lawful for the sacrificer. Rather, he prays that the king and all the Persians be well, for he reckons himself among them. He then cuts the victim limb from limb into portions, and, after boiling the flesh, spreads the softest grass, trefoil usually, and places all of it on this. When he has so arranged it, a magus comes near and chants over it the song of the birth of the gods, as the Persian tradition relates it, for no sacrifice can be offered without a magus. Then after a little while the sacrificer carries away the flesh and uses it as he pleases. The day which every man values most is his own birthday. On this day he thinks it right to serve a more abundant meal than on other days, Oxen or horses or camels or asses, roasted whole in ovens, are set before the rich. The poorer serve the lesser kinds of cattle. Their courses are few, the dainties that follow many, and not all serve together. This is why the Persians say of Greeks that they rise from table still hungry, because not much dessert is set before them. Were this, too, given to Greeks, the Persians say, they would never stop eating. They are very partial to wine. No one may vomit or urinate in another's presence. This is prohibited among them. Moreover, it is their custom to deliberate about the gravest matters when they are drunk, and what they approve in their deliberations is proposed to them the next day, when they are sober, by the master of the house where they deliberate. And if, being sober, they still approve it, they act on it. But if not, they drop it. And if they have deliberated about a matter when sober, they decide upon it when they are drunk. When one man meets another on the road, it is easy to see if the two are equals, for if they are, they kiss each other on the lips without speaking. If the difference in rank is small, the cheek is kissed, 
if it is great, the humbler bows and does obeisance to the other. They honor most of all those who live nearest them, next those who are next nearest, and so going ever onwards they assign honor by this rule. Those who dwell farthest off they hold least honorable of all, for they think that they are themselves in all regards by far the best of all men, that the rest have only a proportionate claim to merit, until those who live farthest away have least merit of all. Under the rule of the Medes, one tribe would even govern another. The Medes held sway over all alike, and especially over those who lived nearest to them. These ruled their neighbors, and the neighbors in turn, those who came next to them, on the same scheme by which the Persians assign honor, for the nation kept advancing its rule and dominion. But the Persians, more than all men, welcome foreign customs. They wear the Median dress, thinking it more beautiful than their own, and the Egyptian cuirass in war. Their luxurious practices are of all kinds, and all borrowed. The Greeks taught them pederasty. Every Persian marries many lawful wives, and keeps still more concubines. After valor in battle, it is accounted noble to father the greatest number of sons. The king sends gifts yearly to him who gets most. Strength, they believe, is in numbers. They educate their boys from five to twenty years old, and teach them only three things, writing and archery and honesty. A boy is not seen by his father before he is five years old, but lives with the women. The point of this is that, if the boy should die in the interval of his rearing, the father would suffer no grief. This is a law which I praise, and it is a praiseworthy law, too, which does not allow the king himself to slay any one for a single offense, or any other Persian to do incurable harm to one of his servants for one offense. Not until an accounting shows that an offender's wrongful acts are more and greater than his services may a man give rein to his anger. They say that no one has ever yet killed his father or mother when such a thing has been done. It always turns out on inquest that the dover is shown to be a changeling or the fruit of adultery, for it is not to be believed, say they, that a son should kill his true parent. Furthermore, of what they may not do, they may not speak, either. They hold lying to be the most disgraceful thing of all, and next to that, debt, for which they have many other reasons, but this in particular. It is inevitable, so they say, that the debtor also speaks some falsehood. The citizen who has leprosy or the white sickness may not come into town or mingle with other Persians. They say that he is so afflicted because he has sinned in some way against the sun. Every stranger who gets such a disease, many drive out of the country, and they do the same to white doves, for the reason given. Rivers they especially revere. They will neither urinate, nor spit, nor wash their hands in them, nor let anyone else do so. There is another thing that always happens among them. We have noted it, although the Persians have not. Their names, which agree with the nature of their persons and their nobility, all end in the same letter, that which the Dorians call San, and the Ionians Sigma. You will find, if you search, that not some, but all Persian names alike end in this letter. 
So much I can say of them from my own certain knowledge, but there are other matters concerning the dead which are secretly and obscurely told, how the dead bodies of Persians are not buried before they have been mangled by birds or dogs. That this is the way of the Magi I know for certain, for they do not conceal the practice. But this is certain, that before the Persians bury the body in the earth, they embalm it in wax. These magi are as unlike the priests of Egypt as they are unlike all other men, for the priests consider it sacrilege to kill anything that lives except what they sacrifice, but the magi kill with their own hands every creature except dogs and men. They kill all alike, ants and snakes, creeping and flying things, and take great pride in it leaving this custom to be such as it has been from the first. I return now to my former story. End of Book 1, Part 7 Recording by Eric Franklin, San Jose, California